The universe is stranger than we can imagine. So when a star system is discovered with some familiar traits to ours, it can be hard not to imagine extraterrestrial life forms and interstellar getaways. But before you dream of bathing in the exotic shores of Tea Garden B, breathing in the moist, salty air while sipping on a Tea Garden tequila sunrise, keep in mind that the reality will likely be, well, much stranger than we can imagine. That was the smooth voice of Ian O'Neill for uh, his site Astro Engine. That's your site, right? That is my site, yes. That's great. Ian uh, is also the editor of Mercury Magazine, which is currently a members-only magazine for the Astronomical Society of the Pacific. Um, but also, he's written for places like Space.com and How Stuff Works. I have, yes. Awesome. And, and uh, of course, I am Jesse, your host. This is episode five of our Science Podcast, a SoCal Science Writers podcast, where we talk about uh, the science communication and articles of all of our amazing members. Today's episode is on uh, Ian's article... Uh, it's titled Tea Garden Party. Don't pack your interstellar travel bags. Dot, 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 yet. And this is all about the uh, fourth nearest habitable zone exoplanets? Indeed, yes. So, yeah, it's basically about an exoplanet that's been discovered very close to us, like literally on our doorstep as far as the galaxy is concerned. It's the fourth closest um, habitable exoplanet. In fact, there's two habitable exoplanets there uh, that we've only just found, and one of them is very close to being Earth-like. Mm. Now, I'm using inverted commas here because <laughs> Earth-like isn't necessarily what we think it means. So I, I did notice, also, thank you for being on the show. Just want to no, thank you for having there. me on the show. No, this is exciting. And, and then also, um, if anybody, uh, real quick, just wants to check out the article before you continue listening, we will have it linked on uh, the SoCalScienceWriting.com website. Um, I did notice, Ian, uh, you're talking about two exoplanets, uh, Tea Garden B and Tea Garden C, correct? Correct, yes. What happened to Tea Garden A? That's the star. <laughs> That's the star. Oh, so it's okay. Tea Garden. It goes Tea Garden from the from the middle. So that's the star. And then you've got Tea Garden B and Tea Garden C. And if they know, if they find more exoplanets in the system, it'll go out in the order that they're discovered. So, um, so the closest one just happens to be Tea Garden B, and the further one out is Tea Garden C. But there's a D that could be really far away, but there could be a closer one. They may call it E. So it's just an order of discovery. I see. So Tea Garden C doesn't have more like ocean on it. Um, we, yeah, we get yeah. it. <laughs> See, yes. everybody, okay. thank you, thank you. I should cut that out. That that <laughs> Usually, I ask, I start out by asking, like, how did you come to write this article? But I really just want to start with the burning question we probably all have on our minds, which is why Tea Garden? Why the name Tea Garden? I don't actually know. I believe it's after the person who discovered it, because the star has been known for a long time, because ah. it's actually it's, it's, it's about 12 light years away, which sounds quite a long way, but it's still pretty close as far as, you know, galactic uh, distances are concerned. So we know the star was there, but the big thing about this is the fact that we've found exoplanets or these uh, worlds orbiting another star beyond the solar system so close to us and this is kind of the theme with astronomy right now we're discovering that m most stars have planets in tow and some of these stars have multiple planets like solar system kind of standards so we're not just talking one or two planets we're talking 
up to 9, 10, 11, 12 planets. Who knows? There could be massive star systems that we're just about to discover. And so it's just kind of got people very excited that there's going to probably be more planets in that star system. It's close enough for the next generation of telescopes to actually start observing them. And possibly it's close enough that we can actually look at these habitable worlds, see if they've got atmospheres, and see if they've got biomarkers for alien life. So we don't know if we don't know if there's alien life there. We call them habitable worlds. So that's only because they orbit at the right distance away from the, the star. The Goldilocks. Goldilocks zone. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So basically, that's just the region near any star where water can exist in a liquid state. And as you and I know, you know, we kind of depend on liquid water on this planet or our yeah, biology. Yeah, just a little bit. Yeah, especially in <laughs> California. So we need liquid water to metabolize. So we throw our image into space and we say, okay, we're going to look for earth-like planets so that's kind of planets that are around about approximately earth size that orbit within the habitable zones of their stars so with tea garden because it's a quite a cool star and smaller star its habitable zone is much closer to the star so i think these exoplanets like tea garden b has got an orbit of like six days and um and tea garden c has got an orbit of like 11 days so oh that, wow that's a year that's a year oh so it's pretty quick <laughs> I've lived a thousand years on Tea Garden B. Yeah, yeah, no, we'd be ancient on those worlds. Uh, so, can you talk about the uh, two methods that you mentioned in the article uh, for exoplanet detection? That was radial velocity and a transit method. Right. Yes. Yeah, so there's um, there's two main methods. So there's okay. other methods to detect exoplanets, but these two are the main ones because around about four thousand exoplanets, so worlds beyond our solar system, have been discovered to date, mainly using the transit method and the radial velocity method. So the transit method is kind of a cool one because if you get a really sensitive telescope on Earth or in space, so the Kepler Space Telescope, NASA's Space Telescope, which recently came to an end in its amazing mission, discovered hundreds and hundreds of um, these exoplanets. And the transit method relies on these worlds drifting in front of their stars. So if you're looking from our point of view, you see the star and you see a very slight dimming event, that could be an exoplanet. And so then you stare at it for long enough, you start seeing this periodicity in, in the orbit around its star. And then you can say, hey, that seems to be dimming every 20 days. That could mean there's an exoplanet there. And then from the light curve, as they call it, the dimming event, you can see how big that world is. And so then you can do other methods, like you can use the radial velocity method, which I'll explain next, to actually verify the mass of that world. And from that, you can find out the density. From that, you can actually work out whether it's kind of like Earth. Is it a rocky world or is it a big um, gas giant like Jupiter? And you can find out all this information just from the shadow of, of the, well, the silhouette, basically, of the exoplanet passing in front of its star. I like that a lot because it, there's something very, um, like, analog about, yes. like, just transit and, and um, about the observation of it. You're literally looking and observing and there's something really... Uh, romantic. Yeah, romantic. There's something romantic about, about it. Because, yes. you know, sometimes, and this is the thing with writing about exoplanet studies, it's one of the most, I got, I got chills down my spine talking <laughs> about it. It's, uh, it's there's something um, so um, honest about this search. We're looking for worlds that we, we never knew existed out there. To be honest, up until 30, 40 years, we didn't know there were any other planets orbiting other stars. We kind of guessed there would be, but we'd never seen it. But now with this, we're in this golden age of technology and, and astronomy, that we're able to build telescopes that are sensitive enough to see the very slight dimming of sunlight. And it's a very basic thing. You can do it now with a light bulb, put your finger in front of it. You can see the, you see a light bulb dim. Yeah. So it's a very 
um, easy thing to explain, I find. And as a science communicator, you know, the, the transit method is a real fun way of doing it. So whenever I hear about new exoplanetary discoveries, I'm like, I hope it's the transit method because it's way easier to explain. And it's kind of interesting. If there's any astronomers on Tea Garden, they will be able to use the transit <laughs> method to see our planet because we, from their point of view, we pass in front of our star, which is kind of interesting to think about. If there's astronomers over there, they'd be able to see our silhouette in front of our star. Well, we can't do that with them because it's kind of oriented differently. These worlds were actually discovered using the radial velocity method, which is different. Still kind of cool, but it's a little bit more disconnected. So basically you have a very uh, sensitive spectrometer, which is basically a, an instrument that you attach to a very powerful telescope that can split light into its, um, its rainbow, basically its, its spectrum. Just like the basic elements. Basic elements, yeah. You can, yeah, you can um, find out what elements are in the star. You can do all sorts of crazy chemical analysis of, of a star. You can see if it's grinding up planets and, you know, whether it's got... Um, grinding up planets. Oh, yeah. That's, 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 that's a fun one, yeah. So... Uh, <laughs> Especially with the white dwarfs. So in the future, our star will turn into a white dwarf and its tides will be so strong that anything that drifts too close will be grinded up and the dust from the worlds will basically sprinkle onto the atmosphere of that star and, and you can actually see um, stars, white dwarfs, actually doing this right now. And in the future, that's going to happen with our star and it's probably going to happen with our planet getting too close to eventually get grinded up if it doesn't already get incinerated by the red giant face. But I won't go into stellar dynamics <laughs> we're going down the rabbit hole with that one um so yeah so the um the radial velocity method which uh, the tea garden uh, b and c were discovered uh it relied on a very powerful uh, sp uh, spectrometer attached to a powerful telescope and it basically stared at the star looking out for any slight wobbles so whenever a planet orbits its star it does a gravitational tug on it so there's there's a period of um time when you see the star sl slightly approaching the observer which is us mm -hmm. and then moving away as the planet orbits so almost like a hammer thrower you know spinning on the spot the actually the, the weight of the hammer which is the planet actually drags the star backwards and forwards so you can see the wobble of the the planet orbiting and from looking at the 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 spectrum of that and understanding how often this this wobble occurs you're able to work out whether there's exoplanets in orbit and it can get really complex i mean if there's a multiple star system there's lots of wobbles in the star but yeah. then we've got powerful computers that can look at the data and they go hey there's a multiple planetary system there and so that's how they discovered the worlds in tea garden interesting it is a lot of fun in your article you have some really good um you have some good art there and there's one um, picture that has all of like, like you have like 19 exoplanets mm. or something on yep. there um for to me personally uh kepler uh 442b looked the most pleasing <laughs> because it looked the most similar to earth but i'm guessing these are these are all i'm not guessing i i'm pretty sure i know that these are all artist renditions right. based on probably the spectral analysis of everything but it looked like it, that had the most water and it looked like it had maybe a little bit of atmosphere on it yeah i mean there's only certain things we're able to derive right now so we have to take a, a lot of artistic license when mm -hmm. when you see art <laughs> and um and it's always interesting to see this is another thing i'm really interested in um trying to find the connection between the science and the art and so I ha I've done some wonderful interviews with um, science artists, like these guys that actually draw these planets. And what they do, I mean, if 
you just take the data at face value, it's going to be very boring artistic renderings. Because the only things we know is the size. We can derive the density of the planet, the average density. So we don't... That, that kind of gives us a clue if there's like lots of water ice. So if it's a small world and it's kind of got the density of close to water, you know it's going to be a very um, ice-heavy world. So you can kind of um, derive some things, but it's not precise. And it's, right. to be honest, it's best guess analysis. Um, so when you, see, yeah, when you see the artistic renderings, I mean, they may look beautiful. And to be honest, I'm really hoping there is going to be another Earth out there. But... Yeah. In our, you just got to look at our solar system. That's Earths are very rare. I mean, there's just one in our star system. I mean, finding rocky worlds is really what we're doing right now. We're trying to find these rocky worlds that have the potential to have atmospheres like Earth, and that's why the habitable zone is kind of important for this study. But then again, I, it's my favorite thing at the moment. Whenever there's a habitable zone exoplanet announced, um, everybody gets bent out of shape about it because the media <laughs> says there's aliens that live there. And the scientists are saying, no, we shouldn't be calling it the habitable zone because it sounds like there's aliens that live there. And so now there's this big movement to say, okay, perhaps it's the temperate zone where mm. not necessarily aliens live there, but we might be quite com- comfortable there if we traveled there. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of, a, it's, it's, an, it's a developing field. It's an emerging field of study. And I, I think it's a wonderful thing to communicate yeah it it did look like in that uh drawing that mars was considered in the habitable zone um as elon musk and everybody is trying for and knows um if you could pick uh just for fun any exoplanet um including mars to uh to live on if um if you had to leave earth do you have a particularly favorite one well at the moment we're only finding habitable again inverted commas around this habitable exoplanets <laughs> um that are orbiting mainly around red dwarfs and red dwarf stars as we've already said they're very small very dim very cool so their habitable zone is very compact the problem another problem with um uh red dwarfs it's not that they're cool it's because they're very angry little stars they actually generate <laughs> huge flares they're like proxima centauri b so proxima centauri which is the nearest star to us just outside i think it's like uh, four light years away so it's literally on our doorstep we discovered a planet orbiting that star really close to home mm-hmm. and it's actually a habitable zone exoplanet and it's approximately earth size so everybody got very excited it's like wow you know we can go there we can literally travel there there's a few um problems with that world one of them is the fact that proxima centauri regularly blasts local space with massive amount of radiation we see these flares we can actually see a noticeable brightening of this star as it unleashes hell on its local, <laughs> local environment and it just so happens the poor planet, which is actually in harm's way, is Proxima Centauri B. So I would say, just for closeness sake, if I had to go anywhere, it would be Proxima Centauri B. Not because it's a radiation hellhole, but on the <laughs> off chance that it has a very, very powerful magnetic field. Because if it has a, magnetic, a very powerful magnetic field like Earth, it mm-hmm. can actually defend itself. It's almost like a force field. It can actually defend itself against the worst of the radiation that that star throws at it. And because it's so close conceivably in the next hundred years we may actually want to send a probe there so that's a very exciting world in my books anything beyond that it's just i can't conceive a means of traveling there yeah. not in a human lifetime anyway it'd be several generations you right. have to build a generation ship but in the meantime i mean i've worked with um, a lot of scientists on this problem of sending probes to other stars and we actually have two probes that are sending they're traveling in interstellar space right now the the voyager probes and they're still transmitting data and they've actually left the heliosphere of the of the solar system so they're technically in interstellar space so 
we do actually have probes that are yeah. going the distance right now. Um, yeah, whether, Voyager just keeps on Oh, chucking. it just keeps going. It's insane. It's like yeah. 40 odd years now. It's absolutely crazy. Well, I, I like that choice. I think that's a practical and smart choice. Yeah, um, practical. It, not, not an ideal choice. It's <laughs> not probably not going to be a very nice choice either. Because to be honest, Tea Garden, Tea Garden B sounds way better. But still, 12 well, and light we years. And we can be like thousands of years old. Yeah. <laughs> so that brings up a question for me. And how do you... How would you detect a magnetosphere on another planet? Because, you know, and you can see people who are listening, if you guys are interested in like coronal mass ejections and all this solar flares and radiation, if you go to the NASA Goddard Space Center images online, you can see all these really cool right. images of our sun, like just, just like spewing out like all of this radiation. And of course, we have our magnetosphere. And if you see the aurora, that is the yeah. solar flares. But we are very protected from our, our sun. Um, and then I think our whole solar system is protected, too, by its own magnetosphere, kind of, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Kind of it's, like it's by... got the heliosphere. So the sun is just basically a massive magnet, and it creates this huge yeah, bubble around us. Yeah, and it basically, well, to be honest, it's also a big radioactive blob. So it's actually <laughs> sending <laughs> out radiation in directions anyway. So it's not really saving us from anything. Um, but yeah, you're right. And and finding magnetospheres around other worlds are, is kind of a big priority because if we did find a world say with an atmosphere that it orbits very close to its uh, red dwarf star the next question would be can it actually protect any biology any alien mm -hmm. biology can it do it the only way it can really do it is by having a honking great shield around it and at the moment the smaller worlds are very difficult to um to study their magnetospheres but as you say we can do it so if there's um you know some kind of huge uh jupiter like exoplanet mm -hmm. um the stellar winds from its star will interact with its atmosphere and as you say it you know, the, the the solar wind creates um, auroras on earth so we know that there's this interaction and for us it's a beautiful light show but it also produces electromagnetic radiation at a certain frequency i think it's like radio waves and so if the if the magnetosphere is powerful enough it can generate a huge signal that we can actually detect on earth so there's a lot of studies underway especially with these bigger exoplanets and it's just and again it's like 40 years ago we didn't know other planets ex exist around other stars the same thing we don't know if any other planet ha apart from the ones in the solar system have magnetospheres but now we're actually finding out that these bigger worlds do and so does that mean the smaller ones do as well well yeah most likely logically it says that that's the case but do the really small ones the rocky you know earth-like exoplanets orbiting close to their stars have them we just don't know in our lifetime, we're going to find out whether there's habitable atmospheres nearby. We're actually going to find this out with the launch of NASA's James Webb Space Telescope, mm -hmm. which I hope launches sometime in the next decade. They keep on putting that off. Projects on Earth as well, the 30-meter telescope, which is actually undergoing a lot of turmoil right now because, of course, in Hawaii with um, with all the, the disputed yeah, land there. Yeah. So uh, why do you think people are more obsessed with finding other planets to live on over taking care of the planet we have? That's, that's the question. And, I, and no, that's <laughs> that sort of kind of a joke question. No, but actually that's a question you come across all the time because why are we in, yeah. why are we investing all these trillions of dollars, which is absolutely not true, in space exploration? Yeah. Um, in fact, the amount of money we invest in space exploration is tiny. And I would say that people don't realize that by looking out in space, we're actually trying to understand more about us. What are the questions we're talking about right now? We're trying to find Earth-like worlds. Yeah. Why are we doing that? Well, we're trying to find life. Where's the only place we know of life? It's here. We want to know where life comes from. 
how do we evolve? How, where, do, where did life emerge from? And these are big questions that astronomers and astrobiologists are asking. So yeah. really, the studies of outer space, you always get, you always you see these excited headlines like oxygen found in distant galaxy, uh, water found <laughs> on this, this little lump of rock in the middle of nowhere. Um, the outer, you know, the, Pluto has got like this weird uh, cycle of methane and stuff. And we're starting to learn different worlds although they're extremely alien to us yeah. they're actually teaching us a lot about how a how special we are and b where life could actually come from because we don't actually understand how earth why earth is so special i mean we understand that it's created this wonderful biosphere but to be honest the biosphere that we have was created because it has life so the oxygen yeah. was put into the atmosphere by life over billions of years where did life come from so that's why we ask these big questions of astronomers say okay well we need to find life but we can't make any assumptions on that life so although we're looking for the template of earth life elsewhere that doesn't mean there isn't life of other means that's why we you know the habitable zones i find kind of limiting because that's not the only liquid thing water liquid water is only useful for us what about liquid methane i mean that that's could be very useful for the americans oh, methane methane <laughs> okay. i was used to get in trouble for that one <laughs> I find that space studies are generally—it's generally a very accessible, it's an accessible science for communicators, for the public, for scientists alike. That's why having good science communicators is paramount. I think in this day and age, especially with all this anti-science stuff that's going on. Yeah, and a quick, quick note on that. My personal belief is that people who um, practice religion, people who are spiritual, people who like science, they can. They're not mutually exclusive, and I think that really we're all after the same thing, which is why. And I think that is a huge part of studying outer space. And you uh, actually transitioned right to my last question that I was going to ask Ooh, you. What's um, the question? Well, I tried to finish every episode um, because this is a science communication podcast, not just about the articles, but also hopefully for science communicators listening who want some advice. So uh, if you could give any advice for uh, science communicators writing about space uh, with all of your expertise, is there anything else that you would say? Yeah, I mean, the big thing is knowing how to connect to your audience. So I suppose analogies um, is, is a very good one. And, you know, that's very valuable. And in fact, I always emphasize to anybody that asks me questions about that, you know, you need to find an analogy. So try and explain gravitational waves to a general audience. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, you can, you can turn around and say, oh, yeah, Einstein predicted this 100 years ago. And we found them. Their waves are amazing. But waves, that, waves mean one thing or another. So just saying, okay, it's a bit like dropping a pebble in a pond. Then everybody's like, ah, oh. ah, yeah, okay, yeah. a pebble in a pond. I've got that. I mean, it's obviously vastly more complicated than that if you look at the math. <laughs> but to be honest, all intents and purposes, the fabric of space-time is the surface of that pond. It's just in three dimensions rather than two which would be in that analogy <laughs> so analogies are very important but also i'd say if i mean i i, I uh, my, my dirty secret is i actually failed um uh, english english uh, literature <laughs> when i was in school so i was oh, not no. a born writer by any means i was kind of forced into it kicking and streaming the same with math i was never good at math but i went into to do astrophysics i i, I seem to go where i'm lacking it seems it's very very strange um but i would say one of the lessons I've learned, especially from blogging, so I'd say get into blogging first, and because it just gives you more freedom to experiment with your writing style. And I found that 
there's nothing better than reading a science blog that's got some humor in it. And I get a lot of um, inspiration from uh, stand-up comedians. So, because they've got a very clever way of tying together stories, and they always wrap up their story. If you ever see a stand-up comedian live mm-hmm. or on, you know, Netflix, oh, or I so, watch all of them on Netflix. So good. So <laughs> yeah. Eliza, I just a, saw Eddie Izzard too. Oh, I love it. Oh yeah, I've seen all yeah. of Eliza's. Yeah, stuff, Eliza, yeah. I'm a huge fan. I mean, I'm, I'm so glad she's on this planet because she, she's got such a way of delivering jokes that go in full cycles and it's like nested nested stories within nested stories and i don't know how she keeps track of it but it's always <laughs> funny when she comes back to her point she was making an hour ago yeah and so everybody and, likes a good callback <laughs> yeah exactly and and you try if you can do that if you find a way of doing that in your writing so if you start off you know you know it can be a serious article it doesn't even have to be funny but if you keep that in mind of keeping a cycle in your writing and it takes a while to develop and and to be honest i only really learned it since i went freelance again because i've been writing now for what 15 years and i started off in the blogging world for a few years kind of learned my trade there and then i went to discovery which became a content mine so to be honest every single day i wasn't perfecting my writing i was perfecting the number of hits we could get yeah and you know discovery being discovery i mean discovery news was kind of a different beast because we were kind of firewalled away from the main corporation which was fantastic uh, I love my uh, my editor in chief, Laurie Cuthbert. She really taught me how to deal deal with that corporate environment while still trying to deliver very good quality, um, bona fide science writing. You know, yeah. we didn't we didn't publish anything just for hits. We although that was obviously in our minds, but there were certain topics that I realized didn't get hits. Things like shuttle launches back in the day. Mm. I was like, what? People aren't tuning into our shuttle launches? What the <laughs> hell? But aliens, oh yeah, we can talk <laughs> about aliens because we're going to explode with the hits. But as long as we're not chasing the headlines and letting the science come to us and then we can find our way of communicating it, that's the best thing. But I'd say that I still didn't have the freedom there because there was pressure. I'd write like five blogs a day sometimes. And I'm like, how did I ever do that? So the pressure on the writer is very tough. So I say if you are thinking about getting into the science communication game, especially writing, you need to have your own space. Try and take a year. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of pressures on this. <laughs> you, you know, that's not you cannot pay pay the rent by taking a year off. But if you can have a job that isn't all encompassing and you have that time just to develop your own writing style, it's time well spent. And don't think you're wasting time. As long as you're putting the work in, as long as you're doing the research, as long as you're tuned into the current scientific um, advances in whatever field you're doing, I think you can't go wrong with that. And I, in the last two years since I've been freelance again, and I've just kind of developed a new writing style, which is kind of echoing back to my early days of blogging for myself, but with this knowledge about what people want to read. And so once you know what your audience want to read, and if you're interested in that, and I wouldn't say chase after the topic just because your readers want to read it, you have to pick a topic that A, you're comfortable writing about, that you have a good knowledge. So I wouldn't say, oh my God, I love climate science. Let's just write about it that's a big mistake <laughs> you know you're not going to live it down you are going to be ripped to shreds online so understand your your field i mean you don't have to be an astrophysicist to be a science communicator by any means but it's good that you, you it's your topic that you love to read about and reading is just as important as writing so just read lots <laughs> yeah. and if you guys want to read anything astroengine.com uh, is where you can find this article and um, others of Absolutely, ian's yeah. Yeah, where where else can people find you? Um, I tweet way too much. Uh, so <laughs> go on Twitter, at Astro Engine, same name as the website. Uh, you can find me on Instagram, same handle. Um, but generally, everything that I do is through 
Astro Engine. So I, as I said, as you mentioned at the start, I work for uh, the Astronomical Society of the Pacific. I'm the editor for their Mercury magazine, and it's a completely different different feel i mean it's a it's a members only magazine but we actually have an, an public facing online presence now we got launched in the last Yay. two months it's called mercury <laughs> online and it's basically we've got this huge archive of wonderful articles dating back to the 70s yeah they're great so, you guys should really check yeah, them out it's definitely worth checking out so have a look at the mercury online uh, on um, the asp website and uh yeah that's that's really my main outgoings at the moment and anything great. through astroengine.com Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. So you guys can find uh, me at Jesse Science across Twitter and Instagram. We are at SoCalScienceWriting.com slash podcast. You can also email us uh, with any requests or questions or anything at sciencepodcast at gmail.com. Our theme song is by Zach Heidi. Our logo is Jamie Fritz. This podcast was produced by me. Thank you guys for listening.